Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Today, we have a special guest VC, Kanye Macabella, joining us. Kanye serves as a managing partner at Kindred Ventures, where he focuses on digital health and wellness. He also co-founded Heartbeat Health, where I'm an angel investor, uh, the largest virtual heart health platform in the United States. Kanye, welcome. Hello. Happy to be here. And of course, today's founder, Sonali Bloom, the CEO of 2020 Onsite, delivering eye care when and where you need it. Sonali, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Maybe you can start by telling us what 2020 Onsite is doing. Absolutely. So at 2020 Onsite, our mission is to expand access to vision care for all. Um, And as you alluded to, we do that through a fleet of mobile clinics that bring care to patients wherever they are. The core concept is that vision is vital. The vast majority of us feel that sight is our most valuable sense. We also know that 75% of adults are experiencing vision loss, but only a third of the population gets an annual eye exam. What's driving the gap there? It's really about lack of access to care. At the end of the day, that really comes down to inconvenience. In primary vision care, you know, which is your annual eye exam, getting glasses or contacts if you need them, that's really about, you know, the time that it takes to get on a wait list for an appointment, to wait around a waiting room, to wait while your eyes are dilated. It's also about the distance that you might have to travel to get to the best care. At the end of the day, it really comes down to the inconvenience of finding a provider who's in network, taking time away from work, making sure that you're doing something routine to take care of your eyes, but that's surprisingly difficult to do, even here in Massachusetts, where we think that we have the best healthcare in the country. When you shift your focus to clinical care, the access gap actually becomes even wider. Um, There are only 18,000 ophthalmologists in the United States, but the incidence of eye health issues is only increasing as the population ages and the incidence of diabetes increases. Of those 18,000 ophthalmologists, only about 3,000 are actually retina specialists, and they tend to be concentrated in affluent areas with a lower diabetic burden. Let's take it even one step further. There are hundreds of clinical trials taking place in the U.S. every year that require an eye exam as part of the trial protocol, both in ophthalmology and outside of ophthalmology, where the eye is an important indicator of safety or side effects. How can such a small population of highly qualified medical professionals meet the level of demand in the population, both for advanced eye health care and for clinical research to advanced medicine? They just can't. Um, This leads to a really challenging patient experience, longer wait lists for appointments, even longer travel times to see a specialist. In clinical trials, the patient burden is really at an all-time high. Patients might need to travel across the country to participate in a trial that could advance the field of medicine, but they don't want to because it means time away from work, away from home, slew of expenses that they'd have to incur. 60% of patients say that distance to a clinical trial site is a barrier to participation, and 90% of participants don't want to travel more than an hour to participate in a trial. It's a huge problem. 
Um, it leads to slow enrollment and delays in trials. 85% of clinical trials are delayed, and almost 100% of those are delayed more than a month. It also leads to really high dropout rates. About 30% of trial participants will drop out of a trial, and the average trial dropout costs about $20,000 to the sponsor, even higher for rare diseases. It also leads to lost revenue for pharma companies, which hurts their clinical pipelines and the course of clinical development. We've found that for a blockbuster drug, each day that a trial is delayed can cost $2.7 million in lost revenue. It's huge. It adds up. We find that clinical trials can fail due to the high patient burden, and eye exams can be a huge blind spot in how clinical trials are designed and how big the patient burden is. So how do we solve yes. this? <laughs> Wait, I, I do. I do. Science. Yeah, I have a question. I, just even before we we get yeah, into sure. the, the the solution, you kind of stated two problems. One is access for vulnerable populations, low income, elderly, and the other is filling this gap in clinical trial screening. Are you guys are doing both? It's maybe more cl- on the clinical trial side. How are you kind of balancing your go to market strategy between the two that you've mentioned so far? Yeah. So we do both. The origin of the company is actually in primary care. And so we started by saying, you know, the the patient burden in getting access to routine vision care is higher than it should be. People just aren't taking care of their eyes on a regular basis. And so that was the origination of the company. You know, we launched operations in 2014 by bringing care to patients at the place where they spent most of their time, which was at their place of work. So we would bring our mobile vision clinic to your workplace. You would get an email from your HR benefits partner. You'd book your appointment online, come down 20 minutes on board. You have a comprehensive eye exam. We take your insurance benefits. You get your glasses, contacts, easy. You're back at your desk. No productivity loss. This business was growing really, really rapidly right up until March of 2020 when we suddenly realized, okay, nobody is going to their workplace anymore. We're dead. And, you know, we have a very innovative and resilient team that adapted to the pandemic circumstances by identifying the need in clinical research. So we launched our clinical trials offering in April of 2020. We've been doing that for three years and almost a decade in the primary care side of the business. The two now represent each about 50% of the business that we do. And our long-term vision is to actually be an end-to-end provider of vision care nationwide where in each geographic area that we cover, patients have access to primary care through our mobile fleet, but they also have access to clinical research. And we can use the same team, the same clinic resources to serve both sides of the population, as well as everything in between. And for the actual mobile fleet, I'm just curious, why did we start with a mobile fleet versus brick and mortar? Is it just, so, was it just because the it was the employer route? Yeah. I mean, the original idea was just bring care directly to where people are and they will get access to care. And if you put a brick and mortar facility in, people have to be near you. They have to be willing to come to you. If we go directly to people, they actually will get an eye exam and they wouldn't otherwise. Something like 16% of our patient base has never had an eye exam before they come to see us. And they wouldn't be there if it weren't for the fact that we were parked right outside. Another 25% of our base would be considered overdue for an annual eye exam, meaning that they've gone more than three years since their last eye exam. And I was a patient like that myself. So, you know, I'm blind as a bat. I've been wearing glasses (laughs) since I was 12. And I never went to the eye doctor. 
And part of that was it was just really inconvenient. I was, you know, early in my career, switching insurance providers with every new job change. You know, then I was in business school. I definitely wasn't making it to the eye doctor when I was really busy. And every time I went, there was a sense of dread that, oh my goodness, is my vision going to be worse? You know, I have to wear a medical device on my face. I don't really understand if there's anything I can do to take care of my eye health. Everything about what we do is 180 degrees from that experience. It's super convenient. It's really easy. But I think most importantly, we have an amazing care team. And our model trains our team to empower and educate patients about their eye health. So even though they spend a short period of time with us, they leave feeling informed in a really different way. Nobody leaves feeling like they're wearing a medical device on their face and they're defective. They leave feeling like they understand what's going on with their eyes and they're empowered to make good decisions about how to preserve their vision. And are they going into a truck or are people coming out and going into the workplace and like setting up a pop-up station? So we have three setups now. We started with just the mobile clinic, which is in a retrofitted RV. It has a complete eye doctor's office exam lane and then also an optical shop on board. Um, but we also have a setup that goes inside of a conference room or an exam room. And then we have a semi-permanent pod that can be placed on the ground which we've only used for clinical research. So we also have customized our fleet. So in primary care, we have larger clinics that have the optical shop on board. In life sciences to serve clinical trials, we have smaller and nimbler units that are literally driving around the country and they only have the eye exam lane, but they're also customized with much more complex, advanced ophthalmic assessment equipment um, that you wouldn't need necessarily for a standard eye exam, but you might need for a clinical trial. So Sonali, hey, it's Michael. Thanks again for joining us yeah. today. So as you think about the go-forward business, do you see more of the business gravitating toward the clinical trial element of, of your business or, or more of this uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, direct uh, primary care focus? So there's a huge macro trend right now towards decentralized and hybrid clinical trials. And we are like right on the front of that tidal wave. Um, you know, we see that there's a huge amount of value in bringing care to patients and breaking down that burden and that that side of the business is growing really, really rapidly. Last year grew about 75% year over year. What we find is that there's a tremendous amount of synergy between the two sides of the business. And we're really interested in growing them hand in hand in terms of our business model. It also makes sense for us to do that because we can zone our fleet and be able to serve patients both in primary care and in clinical trials out of the same resources. Um, and so we see that we'll actually attempt to grow both in parity. They've been about 50-50 in the business the last couple of years. And while we do expect um, that clinical will become a bigger part of what we do over time because the patient need is greater um, and therefore the sponsor need and the CRO need is greater, we'd ideally like to see both grow in parity. And remind us again, how, how many, uh, how many, what percentage of clinical trials today re require an eye exam as part of the, the trial process? I can't say as a percentage of trials, but we know that there are hundreds. There are probably a couple hundred in ophthalmology and then several hundred outside of ophthalmology every year that require an eye exam. You know, ophthalmology in the U.S. is a $3.2 billion market for R&D. It's the seventh largest therapeutic area in the U.S. But there's a lot out there that requires an eye exam. So 
We've actually worked on trials for hepatitis, for chronic cough, uh, for uh, treatment for cyanide poisoning, all of which had a side effect that was being monitored in the eye. And so we, we definitely think that actually there's a huge market outside of ophthalmology where a trial is being designed for a different patient population than one that's suffering from an eye health issue. And that's where you know the, the actual eye exam component sometimes gets missed um, and we can be there and bring it to patients when they need it. And then we step back out when it's not needed. Amelie, hi. I'm curious about hi. the product and who's delivering the service. So can we talk about the type of eye exam and specifically the type of eye exam that 70% of the population doesn't realize that they need? Because that was a surprising stat to me. And I want to drill into that a little bit more deeply. Yeah, absolutely. So we perform a comprehensive eye exam, which is, you know, everything from pre-testing equipment where we're taking eye pressure tests using the puff test that everybody maybe has a love-hate relationship with, um, but everyone knows it if Hate. they've had an eye exam. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, gale force winds hitting oh, your no. eyes, not a really fun I'm like, wait, is it touching but... my eye? Like, oh. <laughs> Did I close my eye too early? <laughs> oh my gosh. It's not as bad as the di- the dilation one though. Whatever you, where, yeah, that one's bad. Yeah. So we also do HD retinal imaging. So you don't necessarily have to be dilated unless it's recommended by the optometrist. Um, but it's a really cool experience because you can actually look at images of your retinas with your optometrist and, and note any things to be worried about or potentially areas that look great and healthy. And you can see those changes over time. And then we do a full refraction and a slit lamp exam on board. We use the best in class digital equipment, um, which I think really helps patients see the difference between how they're seeing now and maybe how they might be seeing with a little bit of vision correction if needed. And quick follow-up question, can any optometrist do most of these tests, or does it have to be optho? And along those lines, if I'm remembering correctly, you'd said there are about 20,000 ophthalmologists, but aren't there way, way, way more optometrists? So can you help piece that together for me? Yeah. So we use optometrists to do the vast majority of the eye assessments that we do across both sides of the business. In the primary care practice, it's optometrists and ophthalmic techs. And we do find that optometrists really are are the best folks to do primary vision care. They really care about making sure that your eyes are healthy and they really care about making sure that you can see perfectly and exactly in the way that you want to be able to see on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, we're really all about making sure that people are practicing at the top of their license. So we want to help optometrists practice to the full breadth of their capability set, which takes some of the burden off the ophthalmology community. We will refer out to ophthalmologists if somebody does need a follow-up or they have an indication that there's something actually going on with their eye health that is, you know, needs to go to the medical uh, care route. Um But in truth, most of the eye health assessments that need to be performed actually can be done by an ophthalmic tech who's been trained using the technology and the imaging um, equipment that we have on board. And then we have an optometrist who will do the slit lamp exam and the refraction as needed. How would you characterize the supply of ophthalmic techs? So obviously ophthalmologists seem to be in low supply. Optometrists don't per se. Maybe we can comment on that too. Still in short supply, but not as severe as ophthalmologists. Okay, cool. Thank you. But for ophthalmic techs, we train them ourselves. So, you know, there are folks who are out there certifying ophthalmic techs. 
You can go through training courses. You can train on the job. We are very lucky in that we have um, really built and developed our own team of clinic. We call them clinic managers and certified ophthalmic technicians. And we can train them on how to use all of the equipment and how to take care of patients. That's part of our secret sauce, I would say, is that we're great at training people and helping them to upskill and level up. So we have folks who are clinic managers, you know, and before they came to us, they were working at Best Buy and we've taught them everything that they need to know to be able to serve this population. It also really helps us be able to expand the pool of people who we can tap into to do what is actually a very challenging job. Half of the time you're driving a 30 foot to 38 foot RV around and the other half of the time you're performing pretty complex eye health assessments. It's a rare person who's excited to do that. It's usually someone who's really passionate about patient care and bringing care to patients wherever they are. But we're so lucky to have an amazing team and our amazing team in turn finds amazing people to come join us. I love that you said that's your secret sauce is training people. (laughs) So selling to pharma, working with employers, marketing direct to consumer, like those are three really different team skill sets. On one hand, I like that you're diversifying the business lines. I think there's like a protective aspect to that. But on the other, you know, does your, does your team feel Maybe they're spread too thin because they have to be able to sell to so many different types of stakeholders. Hallie, that's such a good question. And I have to say that our marketing is one of the things that keeps me up at night. So we got really good at selling B2B into the employer space. We are, you know, we're focused on not charging fees. So it's it's not really a sales process so much as a, a leveraged patient acquisition process for us where the HR benefits manager at a company, you know, and it could be a company as large as Novartis or Wayfair or as small as a small millwork company that needs specialized vision testing, you know, they're bringing us to their work site and then we're seeing patients there. And, you know, our business model then is the same as any other optometric practice, insurance reimbursements and patient out of pocket. We have a very efficient marketing and sales engine on that side of the business that works really, really well and a team that is dedicated on that side of the business. On the life sciences side of the business, which is newer for us, I would say, you know, this is where we're really focused on building relationships with sponsors and CROs. We have partnered up with some of the best CROs out there, some of the really big ones and some of the more innovative ones to bring this service to trials that they're working on. And that's been the approach that we've taken. We have been lucky in that we've had a lot of inbound interest from some of the trial sponsors who are really at the forefront of thinking about how to take care of their patients and how to make sure that their trials are successful. So our, you know, our first client was a company called AGTC, now Beacon Therapeutics, and they were focused on a rare disease population during the pandemic. And they reached out to us and that was how our partnership started. But we've been lucky to work with some of the most innovative biopharma sponsors to bring this to their trials. But I do think that most people actually don't know that this is something that we're doing. We're still relatively new in this arena and we're the only um, decentralized care provider in eye health. And so um, in many cases, we're, we're, we don't have any meaningful competition, but that also means sometimes that people don't know that there's a market and that this is a service that you can actually tap into. So that is one of the challenges that is facing us right now is how do we best get the word out there? 
So Sonali, just curious. So on the website, and I think you mentioned this, for these clinical trial opportunities, is the mobile clinic going patient to patient to their homes or, or how, how does that work? Because I, I get it with the employer. You're coming up, you're setting up shop at a, at a big tech company or a big uh, a Fortune 100 company, but, uh, but how, how do you deal with that from a clinical trial process perspective? Multiple modalities, and it really depends on the trial protocol. So in some cases where we're working on a rare disease trial, we will actually park in the, dri- in the driveway of the patient's home and see the patient for the eight hours of eye health assessments that they need as part of the trial there. In many cases, we're actually working on, say, a phase one safety trial where the trial has a specific duration and it's taking place at a specific site. And they're dosing a cohort of patients over the course of two weeks, and they need five eye exams over the course of those two weeks. In scenarios like that, we will actually bring our suite setup, which goes inside of an exam lane, and we will set up shop essentially in that medical facility for the duration of that trial and just see patients there. So when patients come to the location for their dosing regimen, they're seeing us at the same time. So we have co-located our site and capability set with where they're already receiving care. In other cases, we have a large post-marketing safety surveillance program for a pediatric population that is immunocompromised, and they will be receiving care at a centralized location at a medical center, and we will go and park outside those medical centers. And so patients, again, would already be going there anyway, and they'll get their eye exam while they're there. So we're essentially bringing care to the closest place for the patient that that is a point of need where they would be already, whether it's at home or at a medical center. And that's how we've found that that works really well um, on the clinical trial side of the business. Yeah, super compelling. Can we talk a little bit about billing and margins? So is there the same billing regimen if an optho-tech is doing a procedure versus an optometrist versus an optho? And, and, where, and where is the variability there? And I guess that's both for payers, but also for pharma customers. Yeah, very different. So it's different on both sides of the business. On the primary care side of the business, an optometrist is required to perform an eye exam, and there are standard reimbursement rates from insurance providers. We're in network with pretty much every insurance provider, and we'll mimic an in-network experience if we're not, um, so that for the patient, it's the same as if they were going to an in-network provider. So in that case, it's really about volume. We want to see a high number of patients on a day-to-day basis so that our clinic margin, you know, which is our four-wall margin essentially, is as high as it can be. You know, right now we're in the mid-20% on clinic margin, which is pretty good for an optometry practice and, and really is driven by the fact that we're able to see more patients because we're not relying on foot traffic. We're going to patients where they are. We also do a pretty good business in um, specialized eye health assessments on the employer side of the business and safety eyewear, as well as all your standard eyewear. On the clinical trial side of the business, where the sponsor of the clinical trial or the CRO is the one who we're contracting with, the, the format for billing and payment is very different. And it's mostly driven, again, by the number of patients that we're seeing as part of that trial. And, you know, it's sort of a a line item cost for every aspect of the assessment that we're doing, and then some costs to cover our team and our actual clinic being on site to see the patient. And so there, it can vary widely in terms of what we're actually contracted to do. Um, And the rates are different based on whether it's an optometrist, ophthalmology doing a chart read, or a certified ophthalmic tech. Um, So the billing rates are different, and we 
truly do try to work with a sponsor or CRO's budget to make sure that it's something that they can take advantage of. Because in many cases, if they aren't working with us, their next best alternative is to actually not run the trial at that location, not tap into that patient population that they want to see. So when you think about your margin mix, do you find that you're trying to drive more of your volume to your highest margin activities in that skew? Or are you perfectly fine with wherever there's the most natural demand or wherever there's the most velocity? How are you thinking about, because it sounds like you've got four or five different margin areas. So how are you thinking about where you're driving volume and orienting the business? Yeah. So in primary care, you know, the focus is really around how many patients we can see in a clinic per year. So we, you know, right now are in the mid 20% for clinic margin, but we see that scaling up to, you know, the mid 40% on clinic margin as we focus our area on being in higher, um, higher patient population markets. We're expanding to Orlando, Florida later this year, for example, and there's already a backlog of demand in that market as well as in some cases, possibly a higher willingness to pay for some of the eyewear products that we have on board. In clinical trials, our, our clinic margin can be in the mid 50%. So it's much more lucrative on that side of the business. And so we are focused on growing that side of the business pretty significantly and see clinic margins potentially increasing as our fleet expands. So one of the aspects that we think about a lot is the utilization of our fleet and our team. The greater our national presence, the easier it is for us to fill every unit and make sure that the team is fully utilized and that they're spending most of their time seeing patients rather than, say, actually moving units around the country and doing long travel distances. I have a question that most uh, VCs ask, which is like, what is the end game for a business like this? Who are the acquirers? What's the what's the exit? Really good question. We have a few in mind that we think are interesting. One is I think that there are some strategic players who might find what we do pretty interesting. And some of them tend to be the CROs out in the market or anyone who's in the decentralized clinical trial space. Those folks will be interested, I think, partly because we provide a service that nobody else is providing and it's a capability set that is sorely needed. And so being able to bring that in-house kind of makes sense. But they're also interested in our ability to get to patients wherever they are through primary care because it becomes, as we expand, a huge tool for recruiting the right patient populations to participate in trials and being able to go out even into rural areas or places that are underserved and screen patients. So huge value for them as we scale. We also think about some of the large eye care providers. So obviously National Vision, Warby Parker would be some who would be on our list who would think that this would be interesting. The last component that we'd think about is there, there are a lot of PE firms that are interested in healthcare services as a space and could see that being a future home for the company if we found one where it felt like they were really excited to grow this well into the national footprint that we think is merited by the market size. A quick follow question to that. It sounds like your market size here is perhaps inadequately describing the opportunity because of how much undiagnosed demand there is. And so when you think about your so-called TAM, is there a standalone business that you think can be supported by this? And, and, and what's the dream there? Yeah, what a good question. And I love that you framed it that way. You know, 
primary vision care is a $43 billion market in the US and growing. But as you said, that's only a third of the population actually taking advantage of primary vision care. We could easily see hundreds of our primary vision care clinics on the ground all across the country, and that we would also be serving clinical trials out of those same units. And so I do think that there's the potential for a standalone business. We're quite close to profitability at this point in our life cycle. And so I think that there's um, there's a really interesting opportunity for us to grow this and see how far we can take it just on our own. So Sonali, uh, how many, uh, or uh, it looks like you guys have, uh, or at least announced out there, you guys did a convertible note round earlier, was it uh, earlier in the pandemic? Uh, just just wondering if you guys raised additional capital and uh, and where does that stand as you as you look to expand? I would say we have a great roster of investors and board members who are really passionate about what we're doing. Morningside is our largest investor. Um, and, you know, they're, they're all focused on the way that we're transforming the delivery of care. And I think that having a group of investors who are really passionate about the same things that we are is one of the reasons that, you know, we were able to survive the pandemic and be able to innovate and pivot as we have. I think as we think about the future trajectory of the business, we'd be very excited to bring on investors into our roster who have experience in decentralized clinical trials and the expertise in that space. Um, you know, we originally thought of ourselves as a consumer-focused, patient-centric care delivery platform. And increasingly, we believe that's true, but in perhaps a different way than we originally envisioned, where we're really capitalizing on decentralized clinical trials as well as primary care. How has being CEO been? You've been at a few different roles in the company. So I'd love to, maybe I'll frame it more specifically, which has been, what have been some of the most surprising parts of serving as CEO? What a good question. So I joined the company as an intern in 2017, and I have definitely worn a lot of hats since then. I'm still not qualified to give an eye exam. I think what's been most surprising about being in this seat is how you get to see the 50,000 foot view of the business in a really different way than when you're in the day-to-day operations. And that fills me with a sense of excitement and gratitude and optimism because I can really see the way that we're transforming the patient experience and the impact that that's having on the way people think about taking care of their health on a day-to-day basis, but also on the way that we're impacting the trajectory of research and development. I think I have held many different leadership roles here and seen different parts of the business, and you end up seeing your part of the business in great detail, but not necessarily getting that overarching view. And I think having that on a day-to-day basis and getting to step back and really think about how all the pieces fit together and where the synergy is in the company and the impact that we're having gives me the perspective to look forward and um, outward and think about where we sit in the greater ecosystem that was not a transition that happened overnight. It took a little while to get out of the weeds of operations, but that's definitely been the most challenging and rewarding part of the role. And a follow-up on that, is the the founder of the company still involved? Yes. Howard Bornstein, our founder, is amazing. Super smart guy. He's active on our board of directors. And um, I had the good fortune to work directly for him early in my time here. And have we've really, really benefited from his continued involvement in the company. 
Well, I always appreciate when a founder knows when it's time to hand over the reins. I'm curious, like Michael or Kanye, if you have any insight into like how VCs generally view a founder who has like you know taken a smaller role than um, they they had initially. Oh, it totally depends, and you know every VC is a little bit different. The biggest curiosity is whether or not a founder takes a role that is the right size for their current relevance to the company. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it sounds like a you know, very healthy dynamic here and is a very, you know, mature way that it's played out. But oftentimes a founder not just holds institutional memory, but some level of like retains some spiritual ownership uh, that sometimes can be bigger and can loom larger and cast a shadow beyond their operational Spiritual relevance. ownership. Yeah. So what a great term for that. I know exactly what you, you know? mean. And so you got to figure out how to right size them and put spirit in a box yeah. sometimes. And that's not the easiest thing for any CEO to do. Yeah. You also have to make sure, Kanye, as you know, and Hallie, you both know better than I do, to make sure that the new CEO that she or he feels like, hey, I've got skin in the game. I, I've got some real interest in seeing this thing become the massive opportunity that the venture investors believe it can be, or they wouldn't have invested in the first place. So, you know, so now that that's always one of the challenges I've I've observed in 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 my couple of decades of doing this is sometimes those transitions can be rough. Sounds like this one was a good one, but then making sure that the CEO and the, and the go forward executive team feels supported, but also that, that uh, they have the independence and the economic incentives to really try to blow this thing out. Yeah. I think we've been really lucky there. I will say one thing that's also unique about your setup in a really good way is, I mean, you opened with, I started as an intern at the company. And so you've, you've seen so much of the company from within, like you've been, and a lot of times part of why a founder has so much authority is because they've had to wear every hat to get from zero to wherever they are. And so it sounds like you've had to wear a lot of different hats on the way to becoming CEO too. And I think there's something really powerful about that. Definitely. I think that it also you know, when I took this little role, helped the team to trust me more stepping into it because I had worked very closely with many of them and they knew that I really understood what the work was. And that's been really helpful. We also have a culture of promotion from within. Many of our senior leadership team members and operating managers actually started as clinic managers on the field team um, or started as junior members of the client success team and have grown up through the ranks. And I think it very much has built a culture of folks who understand what's involved in doing this work on a day-to-day basis and how challenging it can be sometimes, Um, but also that there is a growth trajectory even within the company. And we have folks who have been here for a really long time, which I think is a credit to the culture that we've built as well. You said earlier that you guys were close to profitability, which is super exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about the top line growth in the last few years? It's hard to think that in Q2 of 2020, we were basically at zero revenue dollars. Um, Having had a really successful primary care business, you know, with now we're at more than 450 clients and a patient ed promoter score in the mid 90s. You know, the business was totally shut down during that early part of COVID and we were we were in a bad spot. And so to go from that zero dollar revenue base to close out last year at six point three million in revenue, I think was a, a very strong acceleration. 
So we had done about 55% year over year growth last year with pretty minimal investment and expect to do the same or hopefully a little bit more this year. One of the things that we see is that, you know, we're, we are maybe running a slightly different play compared to some other startups that are focused on growth at all costs. We are focused on growth with margin expansion. And it's partly because we do see ourselves as being close to that profitability inflection point and becoming a self-sustaining business, I think opens a lot of doors for us. And since it's within striking distance, we're going after that as well as the top line growth. Amazing. That's really impressive. What's been the hardest thing about being in eye care? Who have you had the hardest time persuading about this market? That's such a good question. I guess I'll really have to think about that. I, I think anyone who hasn't been on board one of our clinics is much harder to persuade than someone who has been on board. You know, it, it's really a see it to believe it kind of situation. In We're lucky now that in the Northeast, where we've had a presence in primary care for a long time, a lot of people know us. They've seen the buses driving around, and they've been maybe a patient or they know somebody who's been a patient. But if you've never seen what we're doing, the idea that you're going to get on board a van and have somebody poke and prod your eyes maybe leaves you with a bit of a question mark. But as soon as you come on board, you'll be totally floored by the experience that we've created. You feel like you're in a boutique optical shop. Um, if you get on board one of our life sciences clinics, it's clear that you're surrounded by best-in-class equipment. And our team is amazing at setting people at ease. So I think the folks that are hardest to persuade are, are people who maybe have never had an eye exam before, and they think that they see perfectly and aren't worried about it and don't really know why they should be proactively taking care of their eye health or folks who are skeptical about the delivery of mobile and on-site care and just don't think that it will be as, as good as what can be created in a brick and mortar care facility. Um, but we know from our patient net promoter score being in the mid nineties, that it is worlds above what they might get in terms of care elsewhere and that they really, really love the experience. But I do think it's a little bit, see it to believe it. Pun intended. <laughs> I, how can people see it? But just go to the website, 2020onsite.com. Yes. And we do have a virtual tour that you can take of one of our mobile clinics on the website, or you can come on board and see us in person. If you're in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, or Rhode Island, or in Florida, please come on board and see us. Yeah. Um, we'd love to have anyone come on board and take a tour or come be a patient. And if you're a participant in a clinical trial and you want eye exams at your house, uh, send us a note and we'll see if we can make it happen. I, you know, we, we really want to get to as many patients as we can, and we want people to have the experience of coming on board and really understanding what they're, what they're signing up for. Do you take the big bus to someone's house? Uh, we have, yeah, we have actually, it was just <laughs> at my house a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> We do, uh, you know, we do a modern house call, um, but, you know, in general, we don't do primary care at people's homes except by special request, but we will come to residential apartment buildings. We go to schools, we go to senior living facilities. So we do go to homes and residences, 
Um, but it tends to be the case that we will be more likely to bring a life sciences clinic to someone's driveway if they're actually in a clinical trial. It tends to make more sense because they need more assessments and for a longer period of time, and they may have another health issue, which is why they're participating in a clinical trial that makes travel burdensome for them. So when are you coming to California? Uh, and and when are we going to park it outside Fenwick and West? Listen, we'd be delighted. I will say <laughs> California is challenging from a regulatory perspective for us. There are some state board of optometry regulations that that are really restrictive on the practice of mobile optometry. And so just so you are all aware, the way that we work in California is we have the semi-permanent pod that's on the ground. And so that is not considered mobile optometry. It's, you know, it's part of another care facility uh, or we do mobile ophthalmology, but we, we don't always feel like that's necessarily the best patient experience for some of the primary care practice. So we're working on it. And if you know anyone on the California State Board of Optometry, <laughs> please let me know. Well, you know, Listeners, lawyer, yeah, yeah. <laughs> lawyers, as you know, Sonali, are spending days and days reading and uh, we all we all need our annual yeah. exams, and I suspect we're we're I know. even. My husband is a recovery lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect we're even less than the thirty three percent or whatever you cited of compliance. So yeah. so we, we definitely need it. I feel like the your working hours like perfectly overlap with the, like any clinic hours. <laughs> you just have like no time to do. Yeah, anything. If, if clinics would only stay open till midnight, it would be a lot easier. Yeah, we're flexible. <laughs> no. <laughs> Now you're talking. Now you're talking. Amazing. Well, Sonali, it was so awesome to hear your story. Thank you for joining us and sharing. And Connie, thanks for being here and all your great questions. We appreciate both of you. This was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Congratulations and good luck. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com, for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Tecco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. 